0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, you can see it on the next page of your bulletins, it's it's, uh, it's in tiny font because it's a big reading. But because we just sat down, I will invite you to stand, if you're able, uh, for the reading of 1 Kings 18. And after being away for a couple of weeks we are jumping back into our series on the uh, ministry of Elijah and Elisha. So again, our reading this morning is the the entirety. No, it's actually not the entirety. We do stop at verse 40 of chapter 18 of 1 Kings. Uh, Let us give our our careful attention because we we believe this is God's word uh, that's for us. So beginning at verse 1, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab, and now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, "'Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all of the valleys.'" Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, "'Is it you, my lord, Elijah?' And he answered him, it is I, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord lives, there, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they have not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, "'I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, "'but Baal's prophets are 450 men. "'Let two bulls be given to us, "'and let them choose one bull for themselves, "'and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, "'but put no fire to it. "'And I will prepare the other bull "'and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. "'And you call upon the name of your God, "'and I will call upon the name of the Lord, "'and the God who answers by fire, he is God.' "'And all the people answered, it is well-spoken.' Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, "'Choose for yourselves one bull, and prepare it first, for you are many, "'and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it.' And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, "'Oh, Baal, answer us!' But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, "'Cry aloud, for he is a god!' Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench." When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. You have to stretch for those Old Testament readings, don't you? After a couple weeks away, as you can see, we just began this this series on the ministry of Elijah. We're calling this sermon series, The Gospel According to Elijah and Elisha, where we're we're taking uh, this season right now to go through the stories of these prophets who I think most of us, many of us in this room, we recognize the names, Elijah and Elisha. The New Testament certainly uh, takes the the ministry of Elijah and and it gives a lot of of, of credit to it. It it calls upon the ministry of Elijah quite a bit. But I think for for most of us, and I would include myself in this to some extent, what do we do with the ministries of Elijah and Elisha? Where do they fit in God's story of, of redemption? What do the ministries of Elijah and Elisha have to do with our walk with God? Again, thus far, we've only been introduced to Elijah. We'll get to Elisha soon enough. But what we've seen so far is that the context of Elijah's ministry is rough. Israel is in a place of deep and profound spiritual darkness. Uh, they are past being a post faithful people, right? Now they are full blown uh, Baal worshipers under the leadership of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. They are a full blown idolatrous nation for about 80 years in israel there's been wicked king after wicked king and as the king goes the people goes and so they have been dragged into this spiritual darkness into this place of idolatry a couple of weeks ago we looked at first king 17 elijah comes out of nowhere comes absolutely out of nowhere. He comes uninvited into the courts of King Ahab, and he announces that there's going to be a drought. And then God's prophet, who represents the public ministry of God's word, he's taken out of Israel and, and, and put into the wilderness. And then he goes from the wilderness into the heart of, of pagan Baal country. And even there, God's word is at work for the ministry of Elisha. And that brings us to the passage that we just read. Elijah has now been called back to Israel, and what we have here is one of the great Old Testament stories, right? Uh, If you're going to do a a Sunday school curriculum to to give your kids knowledge of biblical stories, I think you want to include this one. This is a a, a compelling story. It's great because it has drama and it has action. It even has satire and humor, It has amazing displays of God's power and might. It has absolutely everything, but here's how I want us to think about this massive passage that we just read in 1 Kings 18. I want us to leave here this morning thinking this. This passage, this story of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal is primarily about the patience and mercy of God. Maybe you don't get that on first reading, but I think that's exactly what this story is about. It's about the patience and mercy of God, which is a theme we've explored already. Remember, Elijah appears out of nowhere. He's uninvited. He's not requested. He's not hoped for. He's not welcomed, right? There's there's no hint of repentance in the story of Elijah thus far from the people of Israel or from King Ahab. They are gone. They are full-blown Canaanite Baal worshipers. And yet God does not give up on his people. Israel by this point has had 3 years of drought which also means of course 3 years of famine and you would hope right that the famine would have awakened in them their need for God it would have awakened in them their need to repent that they would realize the errors of their ways in that they have been giving their hearts to nothing gods but that's not what elijah finds when he, when God calls him to return to Israel So let's dig into 1 Kings 18. I think we're going to see three things about God in our passage as Elijah enters back into the spiritual darkness of Israel. The first thing we see is the God who works in the darkness. The first thing we learned, this story of Obadiah, is that God has not abandoned his people. Elijah and his ministry left Israel, but God has not departed from Israel. Secondly, God confronts the darkness, and that's, of course, the confrontation of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And then finally, God overcomes the darkness because this is a story about redemption and restoration of God's people only singularly because of God's grace. All right, so first of all, let's consider the God who works in the darkness. Passage picks up with God putting an end to the drought. He says to Elijah, return to Ahab and I will send rain. And then the camera cuts, the scene changes. And now all of a sudden we are inside of Ahab's courts. And we're introduced to this guy named Obadiah, and we learn two interesting things about Obadiah. First of all, he is over Ahab's household. That means that he likely maintains all of the inner workings of Ahab's court. He, he maybe oversees all of the staff and all of the servants and all of the livestock. He is the guy that makes sure everything is running smoothly for the king. He has what is likely an intimate daily audience with King Ahab. That's pretty interesting, but that's not all we learn about Obadiah, we also learn that he feared the Lord greatly. To fear the Lord, of course, doesn't mean that he's terrified of God. doesn't mean that he's fearful of God. I think to, to fear the Lord really means that he understands how the world works. He is someone, to quote Psalm 100, who knows that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Obadiah knows That everything belongs to God. He is the Lord. And so God withdrew his word from Ahab and taking away the prophet Elijah. But now we learn that even in this spiritual desert, there are some faithful who remain. Because Obadiah had this incredible mission, right? He's overseeing, hiding, and providing for 100 prophets of God in caves. So Elijah comes back, finds Obadiah out on official court business. And he wants to send Obadiah to go get Ahab and bring him to Elijah. And Obadiah responds, that is a death mission. All Ahab has wanted for three years is to find you and kill you. If I go say, go find Elijah, he's going to kill me because the Spirit of the Lord's probably just going to usher you away and that will leave nothing between the wrath of Ahab and me. And in verse 15, Elijah responds, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. And so Obadiah left to grab Elijah, or Ahab. Now I think there's enough here in these 16 verses, which is pretty amazing. There, there's a sermon in here uh, that, that I, I consider just doing because there, there's so many principles we grasp from this, right? So we have Ahab. Ahab is as wicked as he has ever been. The drought has done nothing to wake him up to his senses. Ahab's spiritual state is exactly the same as when we last saw him before Elijah was taken away. Ahab's spiritual state may not be a surprise, but I think Obadiah surely is a surprise. Obadiah fears the living God, and he has by God's power kept 100 prophets, not only hidden, but hydrated and fed. And that leaves us considering, I think, a really important point. Isn't God just as much in the work and ministry of Obadiah as he is Elijah? See, I don't think we read Obadiah as a negative character. Do you have the courage to call Obadiah fearful and faithless when he isn't interested in signing up for Elijah's suicide mission? No. And so what we see here is that God works in his people in different ways, all in service of the same mission. And I think that's an important point to grasp here. Elijah has the ministry of confrontation, doesn't he? Obadiah has the ministry of subversion. Obadiah has risen to this prominent role in Ahab's court. And notice this, his calling is not to resign in protest. His calling is not to continually call Ahab to repentance. His calling, his faithfulness, looks like using his position as cover to get to work for God. Obadiah was not called to be an Elijah. Obadiah was called to be who God equipped him and called him to be. I think that's a valuable word for us. I think there's a strain in church history that says we're all called to be an Elijah. No, we're called to be faithful where God has called us. I think we can get in trouble when the only application is, are you being like Elijah? No, where has God called you and what does faithfulness look like where God has called you? There's a, big, a bigger picture here, too, which is that God's word, yes, it had departed from Israel through the ministry of Elijah, but of course, God had not departed from Israel. When Obadiah starts to panic at the mission Elijah holds out for him, Elijah proclaims a word of who God is when he says, as the Lord of hosts lives. As the God who has heaven's armies, a snap of his fingers away, as he lives lives, Obadiah, don't forget that your life is lived before him. I think that's another great encouragement, especially in this place of of spiritual darkness. A prayer that has meant a lot to me over over the past season comes from the the Book of Common Prayer, uh, which is the the English Reformation's prayer book. And it has this beautiful prayer, this one line which has stood out, which is, help us always to remember that we are ever living in your sight. That sounds simple, doesn't it? As, as Christians, we would say, well, of course we're living before the sight of God. But, but I wonder, how much trouble do we get in? How much unbelief do we have? How much sin do we pursue for the simple reason that we have forgotten that we are ever living before the sight of God? I think that's all Elijah is reminding Obadiah here. Don't forget that you are ever living in the sight of God. God is at work even in the darkness, preserving and sustaining his prophets. Secondly, of course, the plot thickens as God confronts the, prophet, uh, the, the darkness through his prophet, Elijah. So we have this middle section of 1 Kings 18. Elijah really confronts three groups. Remember, he has that ministry of confrontation, really a ministry of judgment to some extent. He first of all confronts King Ahab. In 1817, Ahab sees Elijah, and you have this kind of funny exchange, especially if you're a parent, because he says, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah says, no, you're the troubler of Israel, right? Ahab says, you're the reason for the drought, because you aren't worshiping Baal, and Elijah says, you got it all wrong. You are the cause of the drought, because you are worshiping Baal. And then Elijah takes control of the scene, which is amazing. Whatever Elijah says, it happens. And so he orders a contest with the prophets of Baal to determine who the true and living God is. And this is no random test. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about what Baal worship was and who Baal was. He's the rider of the storm, he's the Canaanite god of fertility, he's the god that's in charge of the rain and the crops. When the rain dried up, it was like, where did did Baal go? Is he displeased with us? Is he he just taking a nap? Is is he having some battle with the God-mote in the divine underworld? And so if the rain just happened to come back, the temptation would be for the people to say, oh good, Baal is back. But Elijah is sent to ensure the people understand just where the rain comes from. It comes from the Lord. So he confronts Ahab. Next, he confronts the people of Israel through, these, through those present as witnesses to this contest. And so to the people present, he says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now, this has an echo. This should sound a little bit familiar. If you remember the book of Joshua, right before Joshua dies, he has one of these great last speeches before the people where he says, choose this day whom you will serve. You can either in wickedness go serve the gods of the nations, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And if you remember that scene, all of the people of Israel hear that and they say, we're with you, Joshua. We too will serve the Lord. How do the people respond to Elijah when he basically has the exact same speech? Verse 21, crickets. The people did not answer him. You can imagine Elijah saying, choose this day, and they're saying, he's not still looking at us, right? They are confronted by God's prophet, and they express no repentance, and certainly no faith. And then Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal. And this, of course, is the main event. Elijah confronts the prophets and this this so-called God of Baal that has captured the hearts of the people. Verse 22, Elijah says, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now here's what he means. We know there are other prophets hiding. What he's saying here is it's 1 verse 450. That's what he's saying. This is a contest of 1 verse 450. And in fact, everything Elijah does in this scene, he sets up a, a home match for Baal. This is an away game for the Lord. Okay, Elijah picks Mount Carmel. That's significant. We have other ancient literature that tells us Mount Carmel was called the mountain of Baal. This is where Baal was worshipped. Elijah says, let's do this at Baal Mountain. The contest itself is about f- fire coming down from heaven, consuming a bull. So if Baal is the storm god whose voice we hear in the thunder and who sends lightning, easy for Baal, right? Send lightning down and consume the sacrifice. This would be like challenging Poseidon to a wave contest. Baal, this is right up your alley. So the prophets of Baal set up their altar, and from morning until noon they cry out, Oh, Baal, answer us. They limp around the altar. Maybe like they gyrate around the altar, trying to arouse him. And then in verse 27, we have Elijah who mocks. We'll cry louder, for he's a god. Maybe he's musing. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep. And so Elijah's saying, is your God distracted? Is your God using the bathroom? Is your God on vacation? Maybe he's back in the place of the dead. Where is your God? And so they just cry louder and louder, and all of a sudden they're cutting themselves, and blood is gushing, and they rave on and on. And then in verse 29, no one answered. No one paid attention. Elijah confronts a non-existent opponent. The prophets scream and shout and cut themselves and do everything to get the attention of their God. But how do you get the attention of someone that isn't there? This is the tragedy of idolatry. I and mean, that's what this scene is. It's, it's the tragedy of serving things that are nothings. And I know this doesn't look like us to some extent, but maybe it does a little bit more than we, we give credit to. I don't think we're that different. The people didn't serve Baal because they were so impressed with the mythology. They served Baal because they wanted good crops. They served Baal because they had felt needs, and, and Baal suggested that he filled those needs. They had a need for food that trumped everything. They had a, a need for, for sustenance, and so they worshiped Baal. There's a system of cultic prostitution that probably suggested that other perceived needs could be fulfilled. But Baal was nothing, and so are our gods. What we give our hearts to, where we find our identity, where we, where we spend our lives, how we consume, right? Think of Philippians 3.19, where, where Paul says, their end is destruction, and their God is their stomach. Such a powerful picture, isn't it? What's more transient than our digestive system? They serve that which doesn't last. And so Elijah is confronting not just the prophets of Baal, but those who limp, those who have divided hearts. He's calling us to hear the silence of the gods that we so easily serve. God in this context, I think, he, he calls his people, he challenges us with the challenge Elijah offered at the beginning. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long will you waver? That that language of limping probably suggests the idea of of crutches, right? So what's holding you up? You have one crutch in one hand, one crutch in the other. Are you trying to balance yourself? It's often said pejoratively or mockingly, right? Like Christianity is a crutch. My response is, what in this world isn't a crutch? Everything's a crutch. And so what are you limping? What what are you holding yourselves up with? And and my guess is that there are some here this morning that, that have divided hearts. We can resonate with this. Maybe you're here this morning, you showed up to church, you you buy a lot of what Christianity is is about, and you kind of think that you can balance your life on two radically opposing ways of life. But you can't. You can't. And in fact, I think what we see what happens is that instead of being shaped by God's word, what happens is that your unbelief begins to increase. And pretty soon you just cast aside that crutch altogether. Now this is a reminder here. This is Elijah's message. The Lord has to carry all your weight, all of your burdens, all of you. That's the God who confronts the darkness. What about the God who overcomes the darkness? Verse 30, Elijah says to the people, after the prophets of Baal have done their things and no one responds, Elijah says to the people, come near to me. Now, I'm reading the rest of the passage into this, but this is nothing short of a gospel invitation. Elijah telling the people, draw near. This is an echo of of Jesus, uh, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. We often read that passage because we are wearied and because life has all of these burdens that we carry. But remember, we are wearying and, and we make life difficult. We suffer under the weight of our own sins And so this is an echo as Elijah calls the people to come near. The first thing he does, he repairs the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. So the idea here is that on Mount Carmel at some point, worshipers of the Lord had an altar set up, and all of the Baal worship, that altar got thrust aside and was destroyed. And Elijah rebuilds it. Well, How does he rebuild it? He takes 12 stones representing the people of Israel, which is interesting, two nations, right? Judah in the south, Israel in the north, but for God, he still sees one son, his firstborn son, Israel. It's a reminder as he rebuilds the altar that Israel is your name. Elijah builds a trench around the altar. Remember, there is life-sucking drought right now, and he fills the trench with water, and then he says, do it again. And then a third time, do it again. And Ahab just stands back watching all of this. And Elijah doesn't cry, he doesn't moan, he doesn't gyrate or dance, he doesn't flagellate or cut himself, he prays God's promises back to God. Verse 36, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that his people may know you, O Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. What did I say this passage is about? God's mercy and patience. You are doing this to turn the hearts of people who have no interest in you back to you. And the fire of the Lord falls and it consumes the burnt offering, it consumes the wood, it consumes the stones and the dust, it licks up the water. When all the people see it, they fall on their faces and they say, the Lord, he is God, Yahweh, he is God. Don't miss the power of this scene. It's not about Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal. That's just icing on the cake. The point is that Elijah invites the people to draw near. He takes 12 stones to reconstruct an altar, and he says, you are Israel. He prays God's promises back to God, and the point of this context is pure love, that the hearts of your people would be turned back, and the fire of God comes down and consumes the bull and the wood, and also, crucially, the stones... Who deserves judgment in this scene? Everybody. The people of God have nothing to do with God. It's not that they are neutral, it's that they have chosen Baal. And yet the fire of God's judgment that the people fully deserve, it passes by them and it falls on the altar instead. God's judgment falls on the twelve stones to substitute Israel so that the people might be drawn back to their God. Does that at all sound familiar? Because Mount Carmel, of course, anticipates another mountain. Skull Mountain, Golgotha. This mountain is outside of Jerusalem where the fire of God's judgment was poured out on another substitute, not symbolic stones, but Jesus. His body, the better altar of God, crucified to save wayward people, to save idolaters from their sins. We too are deserving of judgment, yet Jesus was crucified to draw our hearts to him. It's pure mercy that reminds the people of who their God is. Everything they have done has been deserving of judgment, but instead of death, they are given life and reoriented into the promise-keeping, steadfast love of the Lord. Now most of us would prefer the scene to end there. If this were in a children's Sunday school curriculum, it would end in verse 39 and not verse 40. In verse 40, Elijah calls the people to seize the prophets of Baal, and they are brought to him, and they're not put to death. They're not killed. They are quite accurately translated in our Bibles as slaughtered. Robert, I thought you said this passage was about God's patience and mercy. Maybe we're working on different definitions of of patience and mercy. But let me just suggest, can we understand and grasp mercy if we want nothing to do with justice? See, the scene ends in judgment because Israel is reoriented back to God, and now they're doing what they're called to do, which is to expel idolaters from the land. The nation of Israel is a sneak preview of the new creation, which means that the ethics of heaven have intruded into this scene, where sin is not something to be smiled at. Idolatry is not something that we just shrug our shoulders at. No, this is the new creation coming into history for a time. Idolatry, which had been tolerated and promoted, now completely extinguished. Just for this moment. And so what do we do with this as God's people today? Well, again, this is a sneak preview of the kingdom uh, that the sneak preview of the kingdom of Israel is over. There's no more national people of God. There's no more theocracy. Instead, we anticipate and hope for a kingdom that will come, and in this kingdom, there will be no more sin, and there will be no more wickedness, and there will be no more idolatry. And then once again, the table gets turned back on us with these difficult passages. How serious do you and I consider sin? How serious do we consider idolatry? I think our problem of evil usually consists of asking the question, like why Why do bad things happen to good people? But that's not what our author would ask. I think he too would have a problem with evil, but it would be something more along the lines of, God, how can you remain this patient with those who hate you? How can you remain this patient with those who have no interest in you? See, these passages remind us of the severity of sin and the judgment that is coming. And friends, it's the gospel that speaks to this judgment. That one has come and stood in the place of judgment for me and for you. That though we are worthy to receive God's wrath, one has stood in our place. One has stood in your place so that your heart would be turned back to God. It's only once we have grasped the punishment our sins deserve that we really can grasp the greatness of God's love. That the fire of judgment that I am fully deserving of was poured out on another. That your sin is such serious business that God himself in the person of Jesus came to save us because we cannot save ourselves. Do you believe this? Because that's the message that saves That's the message that draws our hearts back to God. This is the message, friends, that we proclaim as we bear witness in word and deed, not to an altar incinerated, but to a Savior crucified, buried, and risen. That we have the privilege to stand with Elijah to say the same thing he said, calling others to come near, to come and behold the work of our God. Let's pray. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would would seal this word into our hearts as as we consider this dramatic scene of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, that at the end of the day, what we see, Lord, is your pursuit of your people. The pursuit of your people that resulted in the fire of judgment falling on another so that the people might be returned to you. Lord, what a picture of the gospel, what a picture of grace. Lord, we're confronted with the severity of our sin, the depths of our sin, and yet the even greater depths of your grace. Would you help us even through this ancient word that in so many ways feels so distant and remote from our lives? Lord, would you use this word to drive the beauty and the goodness and the truthfulness of your gospel deeper into our lives? Lord, we thank you for this word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.